So it's really up to you. Just have to make up your own damn mind to either accept what I'm going to tell you or reject it. Tandy? everybody welcome back to grumpy octopus presents wachowski watch we are in our fourth episode yes we are what are we doing today camden we're doing the matrix reloaded that is true Woo-hoo. which is the second matrix movie yes. although we did take a little detour to cover the animatrix which i think really helps yes because it goes over some of the stuff that we will be covering for this one as well yes it's so. good to, to talk about it before the sequels I think, instead so, of afterwards. Yeah, so if, if you haven't heard that one, I would highly recommend listening to it and then popping back over here. Mm-hmm. But let us go forth and talk about it. When was the first time you saw Matrix Reloaded? And uh, what are your thoughts and feelings about it? saw The Matrix Reloaded uh, when it came out in 2003. And I thought it was very cool. I liked the action scenes. And I probably did not pay much attention to anything else uh, so I did not have an opinion on those things at the time but I do now but I think I watched it quite a lot at the time I mean after it came out on DVD and mostly watched the action scenes mm. and that was exciting and then I don't even remember actually when I saw the third one but I just remember watching the second one a lot and that's pretty much my Matrix Reloaded experience until recent years Mm, respectable what about you me uh i remember first hearing about it uh i remember seeing posters for it when it came out in theaters and i was like oh they're making other ones that's pretty cool Uh to again this series that i've never seen and i remember a lot of my friends when i was younger went to go see it and they were very excited because it had a sex scene in it and they thought they were super cool and adult because their parents let them see a rated r movie and I didn't see it, didn't really have interest in seeing it until I finally got around to seeing The Matrix around high school. And I kind of just cranked them out. So I saw The Matrix and then I saw Reloaded and Revolutions uh, almost back to back. And I remember when I, I first watched Reloaded all the way through, I was surprised that I had actually already seen some scenes prior to it, the big one being the the chateau fight sequence uh-huh. along with the, the highway fight sequence because I believe they were on the background on the TV every now and then Yeah. and I remember I think being fresh off of watching The Matrix and having my mind blown by that one and kind of falling in love with it, watching this one I was very impressed with the action sequences as well but also incredibly confused by the last part, it gets a little heavy with that, with the architect and the oracle and, and what's going on with Agent Smith. Mm-hmm. And so uh, it definitely helped rewatching it and appreciating more than just the action scenes, but it has definitely taken me a while. I've always liked it. I, I think it's not like a perfect sequel, but it was entertaining to say the least. And the more I've watched it and been able to discuss it with people, I think the more I've been able to kind of cipher things I didn't understand before mm-hmm. De- decipher things decipher. decipher sorry I'm thinking of Joey Pants right that's now. what happened to him in the first time that's right. he was deciphered hey hey, hey. <laughs> weird play <laughs> but uh, yeah I, long story short is I, I always enjoyed it but I, I think 
I've been able to enjoy it more recently mm-hmm. because I've been able to kind of flush out some details with people and discuss it, which helps. So, yep. Yeah, so we don't we don't want to take up too much time trying to summarize it because honestly, it's it's a little more overly complicated. complicated. Yes. Yeah, definitely more so than than the first Matrix. Less straightforward to be but sure. Essentially, if you divide it into into Reloaded and ignore Revolutions. Reloaded is just about the crew of the Nebuchadnezzar, our ship, you know, plus everyone else that you do meet in this movie, learning that the human city of Zion, uh, which you actually get to see in this one and you did not in the first, Mm -hmm. is about to be invaded by the machines, and they don't have much time, and Neo is going to go on a... You know, spiritual hero quest yes. to uh, to find the source. That's an air quotes phrase, uh, which is where he will supposedly find the secret to fulfilling his destiny and saving Zion from being invaded by all these awful squid monsters. They're so cute, though. <laughs> and uh, that's pretty much the second one. It just goes up until he does find the source, and then you know. Things don't go quite that. as planned, yes. and and the third movie is pretty much devoted to everything afterwards. Mm-hmm. So we'll just get into the details yeah. of that as they come up, because there are so many details. Yes, we shall deep dive. And honestly, if you haven't seen it already, this will just be even more confusing anyway. Yeah. Because you can't even usually figure it all out by watching the movie once. True. So It took us a couple times, that's for sure, and I still don't think we have everything down, but it's okay. So I guess we could deep dive in. Uh, I would like to start by talking about that fabulous opening. Similar, I think what's kind of comfortable about the opening for Reloaded is it it harkens back to the first Matrix movie, where you get to start out with Trinity, and it's a weird setup where it's the same thing of... You know Trinity, and you know who she is this time around, but she's also thrown yet again into a situation where you don't know what's happening and why she's yeah. there, but she's blowing shit up, and it's awesome. So you have the, the action scenes of her you know, falling through the window and shooting at the agent who is falling down, following her. It's all a dream, and most disturbing is she plummets into a car and dies. Mm-hmm. She gets shot, too. Yeah, quite a bit. So uh, you you discover that it is a dream, and Neo wakes up and is very nervous about Trinity's safety and her fate in this upcoming quest, and I don't know, I enjoy it. I enjoy that action scene. Yeah. It's fun because it's one of those rare action scenes where you are going to see it again and already know how happens Mm -hmm. but you get more information leading up to it which is exciting and it's kind of cool because you get to see since you know the filmmakers are already aware that you've seen the sequence before they get to show you kind of different angles and cut out bits and pieces and add in more bits and pieces so it's fun yeah seeing the same thing but at a different angle is cool Mm -hmm. so yeah i like it i think it's a good opener i think it's a good start for a sequel to a very kind of bombastic action heavy finale of the matrix yeah i think i think it's a sequel you know um there are many different ways to to tackle something like that but one of the best ways might be to just talk about how it's different from the first one yes and also why we think it works Mm. and why we think it doesn't yes Uh, because it is well known yes for not being uh not being perfect and for being divisive 
Uh, and that will happen even more so. With the third, the third one. movie. Yeah. I think one of the first things you notice about it is that it has such a wider scope, obviously. Oh, yeah. And uh, you meet a lot of characters at once. Yes. Oh, can we talk about Link? Yeah, well, yes. Okay. You do meet a new crew member. Yes. We're doing that right now, is that? We can, because he is. It's So it's a, it's a fun expansion of the world, but it's also obviously an extension of it, too, because it picks up, you know, six months after The Matrix, but it, there's definitely a ripple effect of what happened. Like, if you point out, you get new characters because a lot of people died off in the first one for the, the crew of the Nebuchadnezzar. And yeah. you have the main three, Morpheus, Trinity, and Neo, are still alive. And Tank is technically alive at the end of the first one, though we have learned he in the second injured. one. Oh, yes. So there's a, there's a plausible reason for why he dies. Yes, he has you know, sustained some injuries from our very own Joe Pants and did not survive it. And I'm not sure about the, you know, the politics of the behind the scenes of that, but I believe, long story short, the actor who played Tank uh, didn't come back for the sequel, so yes. they have to replace him. And they actually do a damn good job of covering that, uh, because you get Link, who I love very much. Yes. And a new pilot. Yes. And also Link is the brother-in-law uh, of Tank and Dozer, I believe. Yes. So he's given a, a reason to want to be on the ship specifically, which yeah. is nice, I think. Yeah. It's a good exposition dump. They did a very nice job of doing that and making it seem natural. Mm-hmm. Plus, he's really fun. He, I think, yeah. is kind of like the audience surrogate because he'll just comment on the action because, obviously, you know, he's he's grown Zion style. Yes. Free Especially range. Since, uh, Neo has become more all-knowing than he was in the first yeah. one. So you have a crew that is full of some pretty high-minded people, and it's nice to have... The straight man. The pilot there to be the straight man, yes. Yeah, and be like, I can't take this anymore. So we like Link. Quite a bit. He's pretty great. He's a great addition, I think, for the sequels. And mm-hmm. oddly underrated, but I enjoy the crap out of him. Yeah. So yeah. So he's a fun one. And what else have we got? What else do we want to talk about? Characters? Yeah. I mean, that's that's the main character that you spend time with on the crew. I think that's the biggest... Uh, introduction change and the second one is is that you're seeing the Zion in the first movie it's just uh, you're in the matrix this is what the real world looks like mm-hmm. it's awful mm-hmm. uh, and then we go back into the matrix and we do more things um, but they're on the ship the whole time in the real world and so actually seeing Zion instead of hearing about it is, is interesting mm-hmm. for the second and the third ones and uh, obviously necessitates the introduction of a bunch more characters. So you have, uh, well, you have Lincoln, his, his family, mm-hmm. and then you have the council at Zion. And With the best eyebrows ever. Yes, yes. And the uh, the other captains of the ships, including uh, Locke, who is actually... Commander He's Locke. the commander because he's um, sort of in charge of... All the ships. All the ships. Mm-hmm. And he's sort of our... He's not. He's an antagonist, you know. To he's our a f- crew, he's definitely he's a, a f- friendly one. He is a foil to Morpheus. Yeah. That's for sure. They both command positions of authority and respect uh, within Zion, but they are both coming at it with very different angles. Yeah. Which is, I think, that's that's one thing that's an interesting change about the sequel. Mm. You get to really see that not everyone agrees with Morpheus. Oh yeah, Morpheus. In fact, most people probably don't. Yeah. And his whole quest to find the one that will save everyone is is seen as a bit of a 
fool's crazy errand. fool's errand. Yeah. Uh, I mean, even Link comments on it yeah. when he's talking to his wife after returning back to Zion. She's like, Morpheus is crazy. He's like, oh, no doubt. But we need him type of a deal. Yeah, it's the, he says, you know, that feeling that somehow when you're on the ship, Morpheus makes you believe yes. <laughs> it's all going to work out how he says, essentially. Yeah. But yeah, that's interesting, I think, because Morpheus becomes more interesting in the sequels because he actually has to uh, deal with people that don't agree with him, essentially. I mean, we have Cypher, who really doesn't agree with Morpheus in the first one. And takes it to the extreme. <laughs> but uh, that's a bit of a different situation. And obviously, you do not see him as correct <laughs> because he does not go about it in a good way. So, uh, Morpheus has to deal with some actual obstacles that aren't so easily uh, fought around. You know, yeah, he has to like argue with people in the second one. Yeah, they are political obstacles. And you have people, especially Locke, saying, like, damn it, Morpheus, not everybody believes what you believe. Yes. And he's very sassy <laughs> in this one. His sass level just goes, like, well, yeah, I mean, twice the amount. I'm sure there's some in the first movie, but yeah, he I think really brings it. I think he brings it this time around because you are actually seeing him faced against people who don't believe him, mm -hmm. whereas the only people you see him interact with who are human are his crew in the first one. Yeah, and they trust him. Yeah, minus one. <laughs> yes, minus one. <laughs> yes. Um, but yeah, he is, he is fun. You get to kind of see his Other arc sides. a little bit. Yeah, where it's, it's fun because it kind of plays up, you know, some s from the first one of Morpheus is always right and all-knowing and everything kind of works out more or less the way he believes it too and it, it kind of takes that belief system in Morpheus and kind of turns it on its head at the yes, end much like it does with the rest of the first movie sort yeah. of, which we will get to later I mm -hmm. think Agreed. but I think so the new characters are good we like them yeah. but they also shed more light on the old ones, mm. uh, which I think is most noticeable with, with Morpheus. Yeah. Uh, with Neo and Trinity, not quite as much. They also don't spend as much time talking to other people as he does, yeah. I think, in the sequels. But it's worth talking about Neo in the second movie, I think, because he's not quite the same. Mm -mm. I did find, though, when we rewatched it, that I was underestimating him a little mm. uh, he has more range than I might have remembered but there is a tendency I think to think of Reloaded and just think of him and his fight scenes being very on top of every situation sort of you yeah know? or like he's always wearing his sunglasses that's how I picture him you mm -hmm. know whereas in the first movie I might picture him bald in reality yeah. without any of those trapping as of like his his costume basically. Mm -hmm. I think it's interesting because in the first one he doesn't, I believe he doesn't put on his sunglasses until the very end Yeah. and then in this one he almost always has them on mm -hmm. and I think it's a nice visual cue of stating to the audience, hey he is a lot more comfortable in the Matrix now he mm -hmm. kind of feels, not at home but he is kind of giving in to those I don't know, costuming tropes yes. that the rest of the the they're all into in. yeah. yeah so he's retaining i think his essential neo quality of being unsure of things mm -hmm. and and what he's supposed to be doing yes but without the the f as much fear essentially as yeah much, there's uh, a little bit more experience under his belt for yeah. this one so he he has a little bit more grasp of 
more or less what he's capable of. Yeah. So it allows him to make more informed decisions. I actually think he's more in- interesting outside of the Matrix. Because yes. you get to see him in a relationship with Trinity. And more important, his inability to feel comfortable in Zion because he he's kind of getting interrupted all the time for being a messiah figure. Yeah. Whereas uh, that was kind of lightly touched upon in the first one. But again, it was just the crew that he interacted with. And in this one, I mean, when he comes home to Zion, you have the kid who follows him around like a very... From the animatrix. Yes. Mm-hmm. And again, that was fun to kind of see that and have it in form where the kid's like, you saved me, Neo. And he was like, you saved yourself. And it's obvious that, yes, in the animatrix, the kid's story, the kid does save himself. But he still attributes that success to Neo. Yes. And you can tell Neo's uncomfortable with it in the same way that he's uncomfortable with people you know lining up Mm -hmm. outside of his door asking him for favors and asking him for blessings and you're just like oh poor trinity she just wants to make out with her boyfriend jesus (laughs) (laughs) so um it's interesting to see like the more comfortable he is in the matrix the less comfortable he is in the human world because people are seeing what he can do in the matrix and are giving him more responsibilities and assumptions that he is kind of a a chosen one Mm -hmm. and he's not comfortable with it yeah i think they set it up well uh in reloaded because it gives you some scenes at the start Mm. where he's fighting some agents and he's so cool yeah he says oh they have upgrades so like they're a little trickier but he still very handily and easily defeats them he doesn't look stressed at all no it sets up the way he's probably felt more recently in the story like really not worried usually when he's in the matrix on top of things and then they start throwing things at him Mm -hmm. well first you do see him back in in Zion in the real world where obviously he's not as sure of himself Right. and then throughout the movie he also gets destabilized in the matrix itself you know he talks to the oracle and he's clearly still a bit confused about some stuff and then when he gets to the very end (laughs) he talks to the architect and he's very uh, surprised to learn that he doesn't have a good handle on what's going on. And he sort of regains some of it through his own bluster and confidence, Mm -hmm. but essentially you go from him being much more on top of everything at the start of the movie to being pushed back down to a more human level Mm -hmm. by the end of it, which is where he kind of resides, I think, for most of the third movie. I think the, the one consistent thing he knows for sure is how he feels about Trinity. And that's the only thing that's really consistent both in the Matrix and in the real world. Mm-hmm. And I think that is the only thing that really helps him inform these decisions when he is unsure of other stuff. Um, as we can discuss with uh, the, the architect scene. Yes. I guess we could... Do you want to talk about the orgy that isn't an orgy? Yeah. We're going somewhat chronological. Yeah, we're talking about Zion. Yeah. So... I think, yeah, it should be noted that Scion apparently does not work for everyone, but especially there's that scene where everyone, let's clarify, has a dancing party time, but it is always referred to as an orgy. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't know what that means, but it's just sort of how it goes. So... What do you think about that scene? You I like think, that scene? Yeah, I feel like, oh, I feel bad because I feel like we should backtrack a little bit and talk about the engineering level scene with the councilman with great eyebrows, which then leads into the orgy that isn't the orgy. It's true. Yeah. I can touch on that super brief. Yeah. It's pretty much, it's interesting because you have this councilman character who, again, 
great eyebrows. Can't stress that enough. And he's talking to Neo, and he takes him down to the engineering level because neither of them can sleep. And his reasoning is, hey, I was asleep for the first 11 years of my life, and I don't want to miss a thing now that I've been unplugged. And Neo's just keeping, he keeps having nightmares about Trinity dying. So they get out of the engineering level, and he's putting out all these machines and having this discussion with Neo, which I think is important in hindsight because it might seem a little over-the-top slight tangent because there are definitely more tangents in in the sequels Mm -hmm. as opposed to the the straightforward narrative of the matrix the first one but he's talking about how he finds it ironic that you have machines coming down to kill him from above and machines down below that are keeping you know the human race alive and he's pretty much saying that he thinks that there needs to be a balance between humans and machines because they're dependent on one another and there's a discussion of like control and i guess well the idea of them relying on the machines and being like machines which i think is contrasted by the orgy scene Mm -hmm. where they're all being very (laughs) defiantly human yes primal yeah Yeah. human i guess so it's, it's fun because it's I don't know what point I'm trying to make about this other than Neo seems very sure that we are in control and we don't want to be we don't want to be under a system of control with machines mm-hmm. whereas the councilman is making an alternative argument saying I think we need to find a, a better balance between the yeah. two. Yeah, it may be impossible to live be without completely them. free of any influence or yeah. control. Yeah, so that's a good one. I think ge- generally uh, we we're saying that the second movie and third movie do have more of these these tangents mm-hmm. where people are having conversations about the philosophy of, of what the movies are mm-hmm. you know they're they're a bit expositional but and they at seem the same a little time, they seem a little heavy-handed yeah. and out of context for some of them but again it's one of those balances of rewatch really helps yeah and they're also they're not really exposition dumps all the time mm-hmm. because this stuff isn't all important to understand mm-hmm. it's more just them exploring different concepts that relate to the movie you know you don't need them to understand all the plot mm-hmm. and I think that I was saying that's the best way for someone maybe who, who has trouble with the sequels to approach them mm-hmm. is that the first movie is basically such a tight sci-fi action movie and if you expect two and three to be these perfectly tight sci-fi action movies, you're going to have more issues. Uh, it's easier to think of them as just a large <laughs> canvas that allowed the Wachowskis to try to explore all the different angles they could find on what they could do with this world they've created. Which you know means that people have these long conversations sometimes, and some of them are better than others. But most of them have something interesting in them that is worth trying to talk about or figure out how it relates to things. And so I, I really like that scene, too, with yeah. the counselor. It's a good one. And then it also dives into the orgy scene that's not the orgy scene. Yes. Um, which is fun because... The rave party Yes, scene. it's the rave party of Zion, which I would 100% like to attend. <laughs> um, it's funny because it starts out, it's very serious and kind of inspiring speech by Morpheus, which is fun to see. 
that he is definitely a public figure and Mm -hmm. he even touches upon this in his inspirational speech that people don't believe what he believes but that's okay because we are all trying to reach the same goal and it's fun to see that side of morpheus where you know people are really into it and really respond very well to him Mm -hmm. or he's kind of you know higher up and then you turn around and there's commander Locke, who's there and just like not having it morpheus is a is a person uh, he's the people's person he's he's a person of the people that's not people person he's not a people person <laughs> he is the person of the people <laughs> yes he is a figure of the people mm-hmm. not very popular with the bureaucracy yes which you know is a, is the theme that you will see a lot in a lot of wachowski yes, stuff recurring oh yes it is something like i believe but anyway it goes from that where he there's a lot of you know triumph and we're mm. gonna and the one thing that is actually really tragic to hear once you've rewatched it and know what's going to happen where he's like we've always beaten back the machines and we've always survived and it's in direct yes. contradiction to what will be revealed at the end Not with exactly true. The, the architect and Neo and the conversation they have um, so yeah it's a little it's it's weird because on rewatch it's triumphant but it's also heartbreaking because it's not 100% true what he's saying but mm-hmm. he doesn't know that so and then it cuts to the rave dance which is intercut with the sex scene yeah. and I was like my first thought with the sex scene was how long did it take them to light all those candles <laughs> but in terms of the the rave as you pointed out I think it's important to talk about as it pertains to the sequels and how people talk about them because they mm-hmm. kind of have these memories and I don't know if it's just through you know word of mouth where everybody assumes it's an orgy like I even call it the orgy scene but it's not it's actually a dance party and I think the only reason why people think it is an orgy is you know they have see-through clothing <laughs> But you don't actually scantily see. Clad yes, it, I'm sure it could have led into an orgy. Yes. But as it as it stands on the screen, it's not one. And it's like even I forget about it. But it's been so ingrained that there are certain elements of the sequels where you assume certain things. But when you actually watch it, you're like, oh, that's actually not true at all. And it is also is intercut, of course, with the sex scene, yeah. which I think creates those sorts of parallels mm-hmm. that people pick up on. Yeah. But it's obviously a celebration of that kind of thing, you know, yes. you said primal and all these dancing people and, you know, one could relate it to, you could certainly film a orgy scene in a similar manner. Oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> but, you know, that's that's not what is on screen, so it is just interesting to me that that is often how it's referred to. Mm-hmm. It seems like it is, yeah, a reflection of the impression that people may have taken from it even though it's not exactly what is going on and I think also just a result of people's impressions of Zion in the first place in contrast to the rest of the movie Mm -hmm. where everything's dirty and greasy and like all there's people instead of machines everywhere Mm -hmm. and that's I don't know that's just a way people refer to it they think of it as like (laughs) we didn't need to see all these gross (laughs) dancing people or something like that is I think how some people think about it oh silly I think it's fun like I said I would want to be in that crowd they have a sweet band that has all these instruments and also apparently some sweet 
like synthesizers or yeah, something. Yeah, which you don't see, folks. Yeah, they're, they're behind a curtain or something. Unlock. It's unclear. <laughs> they have a great speaker system in Zion. Yeah. Well, the caves, damn. I it's bet true, the acoustics echoing. there. Yeah. Pretty good. Pretty good. <laughs> yeah. So, like you know, that's a, that's a good scene to talk about. Yeah. It's also, I think, immediately after that scene, you have the weird phone scene where there's two guys in the Matrix running away, being like, oh, my God, did you see that agent? And they're like, yeah, mm-hmm. we got to report back to Zion. Because, you know, one ship was left behind to, uh, I believe, wait to see if they would get a signal from the Oracle so they could let Morpheus know. And that's mm-hmm. kind of why Morpheus is in trouble with Locke. Aside from the other character that is between them, who we have not discussed yet, but we will get to her yes. shortly. Anywho, it's these guys were on the ship, I believe, in the Matrix, awaiting the Oracle to send word to Neo that she wants to meet with him. And they're running from an agent that you don't see yet, and freaking out, because like, I've never seen anything like this before. One of them gets back in, the other one is about to get back in, and then our very own Hugo Weaving shows up. Yeah, and the and, movie gets so much better. And as yeah, we're not biased at all. <laughs> um, he shows up and he does the creepy assimilation thing, and you're kind of like, what the hell's going on? It's a really short scene, and they, you know, he assimilates the guy, and then the guy answers the phone, and goes back into mm-hmm. the real world, and it's like seems really random and out of context and you're not quite sure what's going on but it's arguably like one of the most important scenes in the movie to lead up to the end and into revolutions you do get the follow-up pretty quick i think because uh, neo is headed out of zion and the same guy uh, comes up behind him Mm -hmm. like with a knife although he is interrupted um, by the kid coming in the kid Uh, saving neo again making everyone notice him so nothing happens but I think that's enough for you to at least see, oh, so we have this guy that apparently is Agent Smith or yeah, something. He's and in then human you see form. him, you know, trying to be violent towards Neo, so yeah. it sort of confirms I'm not sure exactly how this works, but it's clearly not good. Yes. I think it's confusing because the guy that they got I don't know the actor's name. We should look him up oh, because you know he's the actor's amazing. Name, actually. What's his name? I know all the actors' of names. Of course you do. <laughs> anyway, he's amazing. You're referring to the great. Yes. I know this off the top of my head. Do you? I do. Yeah. It's a good thing uh, you're not stalling. Ian Bliss. What was his name? Ian Bliss. Ian Bliss. That's his name. He's in so many other movies. Oh yeah. Including The Matrix Revolution. Yes. Long story short, Ian Bliss is a badass because he does a fantastic job being able to play Agent Smith in human form. And that is no small feat considering Hugo Weaving is Agent Smith. He probably just watched a lot of clips of Hugo and then was making fun of him the whole time with his impression, essentially. Knocked it out of the park, that's all I'm saying. But he's great because he's in human form, and for some reason the first time I saw this movie, I think because you get introduced to so many uh, crews and captains, it's kind of hard to keep track sometimes. Mm -hmm. And so when I first saw that scene, I was like, I don't know what's going on. Is it some like weird introduction to Agent Smith being back? I'm not sure. Yeah. And then he kind of keeps popping up. Because you haven't really seen him properly. Yeah. Uh, and for me, I mean, you haven't really seen him talk too much. So you're like, uh, is he just has he just gone crazy? And you're like, no, it, he's actually been assimilated by Agent Smith. Mm-hmm. So, I think that basically gets cleared up by by the Burly Brawl yes. fight scene. Although before we talk about that, I think mm-hmm. we should just talk about the Oracle. Yeah. Chronological so, is a good way to do this. I think it's so. It's a confusing movie. I think movie. we're doing well. Yeah, especially. We can first, we're, we're supposed to add some some balance and color to our summaries so mm-hmm. you know you 
loyal listeners, mm. do not think we are just awful, biased fan people. So I will say that before Neo talks to the Oracle, yeah. he has to go through a sort of test fight scene mm. with her bodyguard, Seraph. Yes. Who well. is pretty cool, but the fight scene is kind of pointless. Yep. You and say it. doesn't it's really need to be there. It's unnecessary, I no. would say. I say you could cut that out. I think the reason for it, the, the excuse they gave at the end, is you do not truly know someone until you fight them. Oh, yeah, that's true. It's and very philosophical. Like, that is cool, but the execution of that was not necessary because it's Neo. Everybody yeah. knows who Neo is. I, I think mean, they just wanted to like kind of replicate the, the dojo scene yeah. a little bit. Well, I think they were having fun with that. I do think... In general, the Wachowskis are very uh, fearless about doing whatever they want. Yes. And this is one of the few instances where it does feel a little bit more like maybe they were just worried that like there needed to be more action. action happening. So they gave you a little fight scene. But because it is revealed at the end of it that he is not Neo's enemy and it's just a test, it just feels kind of like... Meh. I don't know why that just happened. I mean, don't get me wrong. It's a very cool and it looks like a very intense yeah. fight scene that they trained for. And that is not to discredit anybody who worked on it. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying in terms of the narrative, it's not really necessary. It's cool yeah. to look at, but yeah. they could have cut it. And, and I understand the urge to insert more action, but so we talked about there's going to be more action in about five minutes. Yeah. So I think the audience probably could have waited. I think they could have waited too. Yeah. But I really enjoyed the, the reintroduction to the Oracle. Yeah. I also have a weird question. Which is, you know, the last scene too it with is the Oracle. Because the actress yeah. passed away, which we will kind of touch on more in the. Yeah, in Revolution. Yes. But for now, she is the good old Oracle. Yes. Gloria Foster. Gloria Foster, yeah. Yes. Fabulous. But it's fun because I want to touch on this really quick. Mm hmm. I have a question in regards to Neo in the Matrix now. Yeah. Does he always see everything in code now? Um, I think it's implied that... He does. He can do that, but obviously I think he can probably see things the way we see them, too. Okay. I was just curious, because I know that's the first time when they're going to see the Oracle. Yeah, you sh- it shows through his eyes. Yeah, and you're like, you huh. see code. Yeah. I would think of it honestly as something like he just sees both at once. It's like x-ray vision, like Superman. Yeah. Like <laughs> he he is always aware of all that happening behind the scenes, but right. he is also just seeing the matrix as is. Right. Otherwise, you know, he'd probably just get kind of confused, yeah. honestly, cuz that like code a is a bit hard to decipher it people is. in. It is, it is. You know. It's true. But anyway, that's important for every time he meets a new program. I feel like they always kind of touch upon him yeah. looking at the code of the Matrix. Them. Yeah. But that is important because when he meets the Oracle again, it's interesting dynamic because in the first movie, he kind of is wary of her, but is kind of trusts her. Yeah, he's more willing to take her on her word. Exactly, and in this one it's very obvious, like he literally says like, how can I trust you if you're mm-hmm. a program? Because you're part of the system of control that essentially suppresses us. I think that's interesting because you can easily work out that she's some sort of program in the first one, Yeah. but I never really thought about it because it doesn't matter, I don't even think. matter. It just... It never mattered to me to even define her in a sci-fi way. Mm-hmm. Like, the structure of the first movie is so much like this classic mythical sort of journey yeah. that I just, they just said, you know, we have an oracle, she knows things, and I was just kind of like, that makes sense, they have one of those. Yeah. You know, I never thought, like, oh, she must be a computer program, because mm-hmm. a person wouldn't have those abilities. I just thought, like, oh, she might just be some person who can do that, because 
she's magical or something. Yeah. I just somehow it does not feel out of place. But I think you're pretty well introduced to the idea in the second one that things do follow rules very stringently in the Matrix generally. So she has to be a program or something. But she does a a very good job of doing what she did in the first one where there's a lot of uh, exposition. Mm -hmm. And she does it in a way where she makes a huge impact. Because if she only had one scene in the first Matrix and she only has one scene in this Matrix... She's only in two scenes, but the actress is so damn good. And she is telling important stuff, but in a manner where it's, you know, kind of like a grandma talking to you. Yeah. And so I think it, it kind of is fun that he doesn't trust her this time around. And it they are a little bit more explicit of, you need to do this to get to this to get to this. And, yes. it's, and it's funny because usually scenes with the Oracle and then any of the other following programs he meets... And this one, so you have her, and then you also have the Merovingian guy. Mm-hmm. They're all kind of talking heavy-handed philosophical stuff, mm. and she's definitely philosophical, but in a more like layman's terms. Yeah, she has the easier language. Yeah. She's more and it's, casual. Yeah, so it's a little bit easier to watch her scenes with Neo in comparison to his scenes with the other people, mm. uh, the other programs, I should say. And yet, everything that they all say is incredibly important in hindsight because she's telling him so here's what happens you have programs when they get deleted they have the option to go back to the source the mainframe or they can hide out and cause problems Mm -hmm. which is exactly what's happening with agent smith and is something that will be touched upon again in revolutions of programs hiding and it also leads into a nice introduction to the uh, merovingian yeah too and then she you know kind of sets up the quest for him saying you are the one you have to get to the source to stop the fight with zion because you're the one and he's like but what does that mean she's like Which, you're the you one know, we will learn is essentially yes her job yes is just to get him, point him there. there and so the the journey that she sets him on is you have to get the key maker to get to the source of the matrix to fulfill your destiny but the key maker has been taken by a kind of information. Like a French guy. Yeah, a French guy. <laughs> a very evil French man. A program called the Merovingian who is kind of a power freak mm. of information. And a snob. And I have lots of other choice words for him, but <laughs> we will get to him later. So, it's also a kind of a nice thing where, you know, she, she talks to him, kind of comforts him, but it's also a little bit more firm this time. Like, you are the one. You turned out well. I'm proud of you, kid, but you gotta keep going. <laughs> you have to do these things. Yes. You can't get out of it. Yeah, sorry. I would also like to like to give a shout out to the MTV Music Awards spoof of Matrix Reloaded, Uh which will make it very hard for you to ever watch the scene again without laughing if you watch it, Mm. and you should. Yes, I think I can link that up in the show notes. Yeah, I will do that for sure. Because every single thing Neo says is a question. It's true. Well, it was like in the first Matrix, I think he has like something like 86 lines or something like that, Where and most of them are questions, <laughs> which is great. But yeah, in this one, I think it's a fun conversation. But yes, he's asking lots of questions as before. I think he like reverts back to old Neo whenever he talks to the Oracle. He's yeah, more childlike he's and questioning and confused. I do like that, though. Yeah. But it's funny because they have the conversation about, here's the journey you have to go on. Here's what happens to programs when they're deleted. And then most importantly, she does a really nice job of setting up, hey, there's a difference between making a choice 
and asking why it has to be made and Ori having that choice made, mm-hmm. which again plays into his conversation with the architect yeah. with the animal. It's like he's already made the choice. He just has to figure out why he made it. I do think that's the kind of talk that probably turned a lot of people off mm-hmm. the movie. But it turned me off. Don't get me wrong. I think of it as a I was confused. <laughs> sort of a nonlinear time thing she's talking about where you know she's not saying literally the choice has already happened in a sense she's saying that the choice has already happened because because of you know what you're like and because of all the other factors and because you're the ones you can kind of process all these factors Mm -hmm. like it is inevitable favorite word yes that that when you encounter this scenario that you're going to encounter Mm. There's only one choice you, Neo, are going to make. Yes. So, like, that's why you're seeing what you're seeing, is because you know the, those steps, because that's just what's going to happen no matter what. But since you haven't lived it yet, you have no idea, you know, what what those factors are that are going to cause that decision. Yeah. But I think of it as essentially her talking about how him individually and any other individual is, you know, is going to make a specific choice in all those situations just because of who they are. Yes. And so his journey is just about discovering how he gets to that point. Yeah. Which is very highfalutin stuff. Mm-hmm. But uh, I do find that interesting. You know, there are a few things in the sequels that I think it's it's maybe too much like this philosophical talk does not add that much Mm -hmm. but uh, most of it I think is interesting enough to belong in there and I think that is pretty much the theme of Reloaded is is choice Mm -hmm. so it makes sense that that's the focus of the oracle I think we talked about we touched upon it earlier when we were watching it where there's a fine balance between I would imagine creating the story and knowing exactly everything that happens Mm -hmm. and presenting it to an audience that doesn't know what's going on it's kind of a, a tenuous bounce of these discussions are confusing <laughs> to say the least but again the rewatch value really helps because they're they're interesting theories to discuss and consider in the context of you know the whole narrative but some of them do actually directly tie into the narrative you just don't know that until later mm-hmm. so again her discussion with choice with neo it's going to play a huge role in when he meets the architect but there's no way to know that, so you're just kind of hearing, you know, yes. philosophical banter. Mumbo jumbo. But I'm like, I feel like in terms of narrative, you're like, okay, we've done enough talking. Let's get to the fight yeah. scene now. Well, I think we kind of summed up the movie in general by yeah. saying that this is just something that's almost purposefully made for you to really only be able to appreciate it properly if you see it more than once. Yeah. Like they, in the in that sense that you know they made it as they were knowing everything while mm-hmm. they created it so to them of course it all makes sense yes it's all in their heads they're probably well aware that a lot of it before you get the context in the rest of the movie or the third movie mm-hmm. would not make sense but they just didn't care yeah and were more interested in making whatever was in their head probably knowing that a lot of people unless they actually thought about it a lot but also probably like saw it again mm-hmm. would never really get what how some of the things were supposed to connect to each other. Right. And they just kind of accepted that that was the kind of movie they wanted to make, I guess. And there's nothing wrong with that, and I I like it. But the big thing is just that The Matrix 1 wasn't like that. 
Yes. And so that's really the, the problem, I think, is that they made a very medium movie, and then they decided to make two more that were not. And that causes a, a problem sometimes when your audience is expecting what they got the first time, and you don't give it to them. Yes. Agreed. You want to talk about the Whirly Brawl now? I do. Yes. Because that's, that's a pretty easy one to talk about. Yeah. I feel like we had these points, you know, it's like the, the rave scene yes. and the burly brawl yeah. and probably like the architect. Yeah. Those are the like... Those are the big ones. The big polarizing moments. Yeah. <laughs> so... It's fun because yeah. you get the oracle and she's like, all right, bye kid. He's like, bye. Time and for then, action. And it's beautiful. The money, I called it the money bird shot when we watched it of um, Agent Smith with all his swagger walks in walks in, and the birds fly slow-mo and you're like this is the coolest thing I've ever but seen unlike you know the classic flying doves yeah of the old martial arts trope yeah they're all ravens yeah black birds yes not black birds but you know yeah. black birds that's yes. two different words black colored birds <laughs> are they ravens are they not just I crows I, th- I, I mean yeah. they're in like a public park I know this that is would true. be a cool park if it was full of ravens it is a it is a matrix park. That's true. Could be that none of the animals were real. And as we have learned, yes, the the crows are programs anyway. Yeah, it's true. She even pointed that out. Yeah, she does. <laughs> anyway, so long story short, you get a beautiful money shot, and then Hugo oh, Weaving is like, Mr. Anderson comes up, and you're just like, yes, this is what I wanted. I'm so confused why you were still here, but I am for it. Yeah. And then, um, which leads into the discussion you and I had about the agents in these sequels in comparison to in The Matrix. And the interesting thing is, like we said before, when you see Neo in Reloaded, he is much more confident and comfortable with his abilities mm-hmm. whenever he is in The Matrix. even does the little quirk of, oh, upgrades, but there's never a fear of him losing to them. And we talked about this with the Burly Brawl because I think some people, the Burly Brawl ends with him flying away. And people are like, well, why didn't he do that in the first place? And that's a very good question. Aside from, well, would you really want to miss an opportunity to have him fight like a million Smiths? No, probably not. It looks really cool. Except when it doesn't, which we'll talk about. But I think he doesn't have issues fighting the agents anymore. But the one he still has a problem with is Smith, because he's no longer really an agent, a part of the system. Yeah. He's kind of gone rogue, and I think that is the only reason why Neo flies away, is he probably wasn't expecting that many Smiths. And even so, I don't think he's ever met an opposition in the Matrix since kind of self-actualizing after the first one, where he feels like he can't win. Yeah, well, I think th- the assimilation is really the key, too. Yes. I mean, that's what Smith starts with, is I'm going to try to take you over, essentially. Yes. And that makes him realize there's a danger here. Because mm-hmm. I think that the reason that it bugs some people, of course, is that really Neo should no longer be able to die in the Matrix. Yes. You know, he comes back in the first one. So even if, like, the million Smiths overpowered him and punched him to death, it wouldn't matter because he knows that can't actually happen in his mind. Yeah. So the only reason it works is because of the assimilation, because he doesn't exactly know what's going on, but he knows that it, it doesn't. Feels, well, he says it feels like Yeah, dying. he's like, it feels yeah. the way I felt when I was in that hallway and died. So he knows that it is not the same as just him getting shot or something. He can tell it's wrong. And I think that's pretty fairly explained, too, by the fact that, you know, he's obviously working outside the bounds of the, the programming, essentially. And so it's like Neo knows all the rules now and why they don't matter, but Agent Smith isn't 
playing by then. At all. Yeah. It's fun to see because, you know, you see multiple Agent Smiths and you're like, holy shit, what's happening? But then what I think is really fun is you see a lady walking by the alley. Yeah. Who is, you know, you assume this is someone who's still plugged into the Matrix. She sees a thing and like the first movie, she gets morphed into an agent. Mm. <laughs> but then that agent gets taken over by yeah. Smith. So it's like Smith not only has this ability to take over people who are still plugged into the matrix he has the ability to take over other programs and on top of that people who are unplugged from the matrix which is those three prongs are very terrifying we talked about the idea of the agents and Mm -hmm. it is a stark change from the first one yes the first movie is like built around the fear of the agents and the idea that they're the most dangerous dangerous thing you can face and you have to run away from them you cannot fight them and you know neo does not follow those rules at the end, which is why it's a big deal. Yes. But I think, obviously, they're not like that in the sequel. Agent Smith is still dangerous, but, you know, that agent shows up in the fight. Agent Smith converts him. It's like they're tossed aside. And yes. later in the freeway chase scene, there's going to be agents again. But they don't feel like the main threat. They yeah. feel like they're almost in the way. Yeah, the way we put it, I think, when we were watching it is they're just almost like a nuisance now. Yeah. And they're still a very dangerous nuisance like technically morpheus doesn't beat them he just gets away but he he's confident like he can try his best to go against them Mm -hmm. as opposed to in the first movie where they're like you see an agent you run the other way because you are not going to survive it i'm not sure if it's a confidence thing or a a desperation thing you could say that neo has inspired them a little that's what i was thinking yeah yeah but it's it's interesting because compared to like the terror that you feel when you see uh, an agent on the screen mm. that is completely undercut yeah. in the sequels it's just they're uh, not the most important thing anymore to fight yeah they, it's a perspective like, shift and i don't think it's good or bad it's just fair to say it's not the same yes and the movie is concerned with other things mm-hmm. uh well it's like you know the first movie is interested in agents the second movie is interested in agent smith yeah. Even in the first movie, it really is more of Agent Smith, but you don't notice that right away because he kind of comes into focus later in the yeah. movie. I think you put it well. It would be disingenuous to consider the agent still the main threat after the end of the first movie. Yes. But it's important to still have them in the world and understand that they're still a viable threat. They're just not the main one or the main concern anymore. So. With that being said. Agents being said, we should talk about the elephant. In the room. In the room of the Burly Brawl, which, by the way, is not a name we made up. No. It is a common term. I wish we'd made it term. up. Yes. <laughs> we could also call it the hundreds of Agent Smith I like fight. I like my my version of too many Smiths on the dance floor. That's pretty good. Thank Let's you. Go with that. <laughs> so, you know, it's famous scene for having bad CGI in it. Yes. Intercut. And I cannot defend the bad CGI, but no. the main thing that I want to say about that as I realized, you know, a few years ago when I watched it, but I see it every time now, mm. is that it's about five minutes long, I think, the scene. It's and awesome. Let uh, me let me say this. It is a very well done scene when you <laughs> when you can see the people are actually people fighting it and there's yes. no CGI. You're like, this is a great action sequence. But the main thing about that is that I would say four of those five minutes are real. Yes. And there's only about that one minute that's devoted to this sort of slow motion obviously CGI Neo fighting CGI Smiths and it's not ideal and it certainly hurts the momentum of the scene because it, it, takes it you goes out on it. for a while 
looking very good, looking much like the first movie's fights, and it looks really cool. And then it, it devolves into this CGI, and it almost looks like it's trying to show it off, which is funny because it doesn't look good. No. And yeah, it, it sort of leaves you feeling like, oh, that's really cool, but by the time it's over, I don't think, I mean, I don't end it feeling, oh, that sucks now, but I'm deflated a little bit, like, oh, that was fine. It just, it takes you down. But I do think it is relevant that there's about three to four minutes of excellent fight choreography that are not CGI in there. Yeah. Because I think that a lot of people fairly forget about that. But I just think they because dismiss it for one minute. Well, yeah, I mean, the CGI kind of sticks in your head, yeah. and it's, yeah, it makes sense that that's what people remember. Bad CGI is forever. Yes, <laughs> but there's actually there's a lot of, of cool stuff, and they clearly worked hard on it. I think even in the behind the scenes, I love the idea that obviously there is only one Hugo weaving mm-hmm. in the world, which is sad, but there is. And so they probably had to put on a bunch of masks <laughs> as yes. temporary stuff until they could go in post to kind of clean it up. So you have Hugo weaving there fighting Keanu, and then you also have a bunch of stunt doubles wearing vaguely Hugo similar masks. Hugo masks, and that makes me laugh. Oh. Also... The music is great. Yes. In the scene, as it is in all the action scenes in this movie. Yes. And I decided upon the last rewatch that I think it's better music than the first movie. Mm-hmm. So that helps a lot, honestly, for me. Because yeah. you get pumped real yeah, quick. Yeah, it's really exciting. And that excitement doesn't wear off completely just because of the bits of bad CGI that are in there. Yeah. For me. We can also, if you really hate the CGI, which <laughs> yes. do not blame you, you could just delude yourself into saying, well, God, there's just so many Smiths that the Matrix broke. Yeah, you know, it is a computer program. <laughs> and it's a computer program, and this part, it just looks bad. The resolution, uh, the pixel count, it drops. Oh, yeah. Because it was too much to handle. That's right. Processors could not take Hugo it. Hugo was too much. <laughs> too too many Smiths. Too many Smiths on the table. That's my favorite theory. It really fixes everything. It does. It doesn't explain why Neo looks weird when he's flying. Yeah. But it covers the Smith scene. It does. Except that maybe people aren't supposed to do that in the Matrix. So mm-hmm. he's breaking the rules. And yeah. once again, he's messing with the program. <laughs> so there you go. There we go. We can just work around that. <laughs> you get this Smith fight, though. Mm-hmm. And let's see. After that, they... After that, he flies off and he, like, wakes up in the Matrix. And they're just like, what the oh, hell was that? In the real world. Yeah, in the real <laughs> world. Sorry. My bad. Yeah. Well, we'll slip there. For some reason, I can't remember. Oh, I guess um, right after that, they just go see the Merovingian, don't yes. they? Yeah. Yes. But while that's happening, I believe it's kind of intercut with Commander Locke being like, all right, we did the, we counted the numbers, and this is how long it's going to take for the machines to get down. Mm. And the council people are like, that's great. Let's let's uh, get a ship to Neo to see where, what's going on with the Nebuchadnezzar. And he's like, I can't spare it. And they're like, well, then send two. Yes, they got volunteers. Yes, and one of them you see, uh, I think the guy's name is Bane who Agent Smith yes, turned, is. which is funny. He's on one of the crews. No, he's on one of the crews. He's not the captain, and he's trying no. to manipulate the captain and be like, I think we should volunteer, and they're like, Bane, shut up. And you're just like, no, Bane, don't. Your Hugo Weaving impression is amazing. But Commander Locke's being all sassy and like, well, I don't think anybody here is going to volunteer for something. They don't really know you know, why they're doing it. And then we should probably introduce yes, that his, one character. Yes, girlfriend volunteers. Yes, and who is she, Camden? She is Niobe. Yes. She's played by Jada Pinkett Smith. Yes. And... She is a captain of a ship. Yes, she is She is also the star of the Enter the Matrix video game, 
which I did play. Yes. And you probably shouldn't now, because it was only okay at the time, and now it is 14 years old. Mm. But... Hey. She is... Awesome. So in my mind, she is actually more important than she is in the movie, but she is definitely the most prominent, cool, friendly new captain that you meet. Yes. And she and her crew do volunteer along with one of the other crews. Yes. To help Morpheus, although that actually happens a little later, because it happens right before... Uh, the final yes. journey. But they do send her off because she saves them yes. during the chase scene that is coming up. Mm-hmm. So I guess we she should just... She is great. We like her. She is, I think you told me, I'm not sure if this is mentioned in the game or other media. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not sure if I caught it on the us watching Reloaded, but she's considered the best driver. Oh yes, she's supposed to be the best, the best pilot. Yes. Essentially, I think in the Matrix. Mm-hmm. She's all supposed to be good uh, out of the Matrix. Yeah. But that's that's her character quality that she has been given. Yes. And besides the fact that she has a super fancy coat that I don't know the color of. I think it's like red. Yeah. It's reddish. Yeah. The point is, pink. she's another badass lady from the Matrix, <laughs> and it's cool because she used to be with Morpheus, and now she's with Locke, and that's just one other thing that those two disagree on. And it's awesome because she kind of just, you know, makes her own decisions and is like... Some things never change, and some things do, and I'm going to go help these people. Yes. And I think she has one of the great lines where she's like, I don't believe in the prophecy, I believe in him, which mm-hmm. is a nice distinction between Neo as being a messiah and just Neo as a character. Yeah. So I enjoy her quite a bit. She's got some badass fight moves, and she saves everybody's ass every now and then. So I'm sorry we did not introduce her sooner. But it's important to note that she has volunteered to go and check on Morpheus and make sure he's not messing up. Mm-hmm. Which, uh, long story short, yeah. He does a little yeah. bit. Yeah, as Link yes. says when she gets in the Matrix, she's like, hey, I'm here, where's Morpheus? And Link's like, just follow the sirens. <laughs> so, um, Neo wakes up and is like, Smith is doing something crazy. And they're like, okay, that's not great. But also the Oracle gave me instructions. Yes. So let's go follow so them. So let's go do it. And meet this French man. Oh, yes. Who is... The Merovingian. He yes. has a name, yes. but is also just a French guy. Yeah. I like to call him um, the douchey French guy. It's accurate. Mm. Yes. So, they go talk to him, and that's definitely... Oh, yeah. That uh, is... A th- more difficult scene. I remember the first time I watched this movie, when you have Neo, Trinity, and Morpheus go to this guy's swanky place, mm-hmm. and they're essentially... I think you kind of lose the plot a bit when you're like, wait, why are they there again? When he starts talking. Probably the most indulgent yes. part of the movie. And it's funny because it's indulgent, but again, also important. It is important. But he, they are there and they are essentially there to be like, hey, we need the key maker because he's going to get us to unlock the lock to the source, which Neo needs to get to, mm-hmm. to fulfill his destiny as the one and stop the war happening in Zion. That is the main point of them being there. Instead, it goes on a weird divergent where he is talking about control and power and orgasmic cake. (laughs) And I remember the first time I watched the scene, I was like, what the F is going on? I feel like I missed something. But on a couple of rewatches and discussion, I think we've been able to kind of sort it out as he is a very douchey program (laughs) Mm -hmm. who is kind of power hungry and enjoys collecting information. And when he goes off on this tangent about how he created a code to, you know, seduce this lady, which you get to see oh so greatly through code, mm-hmm. um, 
he is talking about cause and effect and the choices you make. Yeah. And it, it sounds very rambly, and it's just like, what's happening? But when you watch it in hindsight, there's like, oh yes, there are cause and effect, and there's control, and that's a huge theme, especially at the end with Neo and the choices he makes. Mm. And it also sets up that the Merovingian is a really shitty husband. Which, which is important. Which is important, because that plays into the motivation of his wife helping them mm. get to the Keymaker. So, it's kind of a tricky one to sit through, because it does feel like a tangent, but the more you think about it, the more you're like, um yeah this actually does play into everything that's going to happen but you can't really i feel like i didn't really feel that until i had seen it more than once mm-hmm. so if you like orgasmic cake this scene is for you I guess. it's a really nice looking cake it is it's, i have to say it's a money shot of you know just a nice chocolate cake so mm. anywho that happens and it's funny because they go to the elevator and they're like that didn't go well <laughs> and which it I'm, did not which it did not and then morpheus is like well anything that was supposed to happen happened for a reason because we're still alive and then it cuts to them meeting up with the wife which her name is persephone i believe yeah and she that leads to another fun tangent that feels like a tangent but you could read into it as a little bit more important where she says i'm going to help you but first neo you get to kiss me mm-hmm. and Trini's like none of that lady that's my man and neo's like fine i'll do it and he does it she's like no that's terrible and he's like okay let me try again for real give me a second chance and he kisses her and she's like ah oh, yes it reminds me of when the merovingian wasn't a shitty husband and it's funny because you're like, what is this? What's going on? Is this necessary? But then she says the line, I envy you, but such things are not meant to last. Uh-huh. Which, you know, you could overread as kind of playing into the foreshadowing of the end <laughs> of both the entire trilogy, but also for this particular movie of yeah. Neo and Trinity, you guys, I envy you, but it's not going to last. Mm-hmm. So again, in hindsight, you could read into it like that, or you could just be like, they just wanted to have Neo make out with her. So, fun stuff. After that... Yes, she yeah. agrees to help him. Yeah, and she sends, takes him to the Keymaker, mm-hmm. and they get the Keymaker, which yes. is great. And then, essentially, you're just getting the 40 minutes of action yes. as they get the Keymaker away to a safe place. Yes, but... You get to have the Merovingian say some fun stuff. One of them being, okay, you have some skill. <laughs> yes, his <laughs> ego is slightly deflated. Mm. And there is that line, uh, we're saying the very obvious line, where he keeps referring to Neo's predecessors, Neo's predecessors which is very obvious reference to the and yet I twisting that will occur at the end of the movie. Yeah. And yet... I didn't pick up on yeah, that. Yeah, I didn't pick up on that either. And I feel silly, because it's, again, very obvious. But... Cue the Mona Lisa Overdrive soundtrack of Neo fighting everybody in the chateau, and it just money shot after money shot, (laughs) and like great fight choreography, and you're like, yes, this is awesome. That is always the part that I would fast forward to if I were not watching it for plot. I would Mm -hmm. just get to the chateau and be like, all right, let's watch this. And then you get the albino twins chasing them on the freeway, and also there's agents, and there's a lot going on. Yes, the freeway sequence is insane. I don't understand how they shot it. I know that they kind of built themselves a freeway, freeway and sponsors gave them cars, and I'm pretty sure they destroyed every single car that they got. (laughs) But it's fun. It's one of I think that's actually I know we talk about favorite scenes. Mm -hmm. That one is mine. Yeah, I mean I think it's everyone. It's a great. Yeah, it's not even like 
it's the, such an obvious one to pick, but... That's that's the odd thing I'm realizing. I, I don't think I have much to say about that. About the freeway chase? It's just sort of... Yes, you do. You great. specifically asked me to note Morpheus's beautiful purple suit. Oh, okay, yes. Morpheus does engage in a sword fight with the agent on top of a truck, mm-hmm. and he has an excellent purple suit. Yes. That you should uh, Strive note. for in your life. Yes. Morpheus, I mean... We can, his style only improves yeah. over let's, the series. Let's just say, if you wanted to get into a sophisticated fight with a computer program, that is what you should be wearing. Because mm-hmm. it's awesome. And, you know, of course, he cuts off the agent's tie, mm. which doesn't really matter because it wasn't very nice looking. But if Morpheus's tie had gotten ruined, yeah. his outfit, mm-hmm. that would have been a tragedy. Yeah, but watching that, we did, again, talk about the agents and how... It doesn't feel like a major threat. It feels like a nuisance. Like, he's like, oh, I got to hold him back. Don't yeah. worry, I can do it. Whereas in comparison to the first one, you would be like, oh, my God, he's fighting an agent. This is terrifying. I think it's fair, though, that he does not choose this. No. Uh, he fights him because they are on top of the truck, and yes. there's nowhere to go. This is true. And he is probably hoping that someone else will show up, which is what happens. Yes. Both Niobe shows up, and also Neo then shows yes. up a bit later. Yeah. So... It's not like the rules of the first one have been discarded. I'm sure if Morpheus could, he would probably try to take the key maker and run. Yeah, I mean, it's very obvious at the beginning of the fight scene, as it kind of keeps building up momentum, because obviously they fight the the twins down the hallway, the the ghost twins, I don't know what we would like to call them, the albino ghost twins. Which is the twins. Um, it's a very cool visual of seeing these people, you know, doesn't matter if they're walls or not, they can go through it. Mm-hmm. So there's a fun build-up to them doing a car chase, and then he's like, all right, we got to take the freeway. And Trinity's like, you told me never to take the freeway. You said it was suicide. He's like, let us hope I'm wrong. So he's clearly breaking all these rules of staying to fight an agent because there's nowhere else to go, and they're mm-hmm. going on a freeway, which is one of the most dangerous places you can be in the Matrix Switch, and uh, in real life. Exceptional folks. situation yeah. that will allow for these rule-breaking. Exactly, and it's very cool, and we cannot talk enough about Trinity on the motorcycle oh, she's pretty cool. with the keymaker who is a delightful man as well yeah. so yeah. it's like it's it's all good it's and good. it's good for a very long stretch of time yeah there is also some cgi issues i think in terms of like scope when you're panning out kind of a, uh, a little bit yeah but, but again but you could tack that down to the matrix isn't one particular city it's a generic city mm-hmm. It's so minimal, too. I mean, it it generally looks very good, considering when it came out. Exactly. As does a lot of uh, stuff in the movie. I mean, there was that shot we were talking about with all the Sentinels digging digging down above Zion, and they look very good, and um, you'll see more of that in the third one, where Mm -hmm. they they still look very good as well. Yes. Anywho. So that's, you know, that's pretty much the end of the second act there, is all that action. Yeah. Then... They get away. Yeah, it's pretty much just the... The plan where Neo is going to use the keymaker and his magical keys, hence yes. his name, mm. to access named. the source mm-hmm. where he is trying to go. Oh, and this is the fun nonlinear stuff that we yes. had talked about for our first episode with Bound. Yeah, well, they, they do a similar thing as they did in Bound where they plan out their plan, which involves the uh, Nebuchadnezzar and also the two other crews that have come to help. And they each have a different task, and you see them... Working he is on narrating. The tasks as as Morpheus, and the Keymaker. Who is it? Morpheus is the one that that. 
detail Morpheus and the key. No, the keymaker details okay. it. Okay. Uh, Morpheus does a little inspirational speech at the end yes, of it, he saying does, like, he does. "Isn't this worth fi fighting for? We can end the war tonight." So they just detail the plan, and then you see a while it's happening, and then it sort of starts to go wrong as you're seeing it described. <laughs> yeah. So it does that thing where you essentially are being shown this is what's going to happen in the future, and then as the montage is ending, it's like you realize, oh, actually, we're already there. We're already it's doing already it. Happening. And, yeah. And essentially, uh, one of the ships gets blown up, so uh, that entire crew dies before they're able to complete their task, mm -hmm. which leads to Trinity having to go into the Matrix to yeah, it kinda fix the mess. It plays out kind of like a Greek tragedy where... <laughs> Neo's like, can you promise me not to go into the Matrix? Because he's afraid that she's going to die. Yeah, cause that's, that's the only thing I want. <laughs> the vision he keeps happening. And she's like, okay, I will not go in. And then it gets to the point where, <laughs> which we can complain about this a little bit later, mm -hmm. um, they have to get to the source. In order to do that, they have to cut the power grid. Yeah. But they also have to make sure that the generators don't come back on until they get through the door to the source. Or else there will be an explosion. I'm not sure. It will not be good, whatever it is. And so the one crew is supposed to be, I believe, the backup. Niobe's supposed to be the one that blows the power plant mm. that cuts the grid. Which she does. Which she does. Excellently. Fabulously. With great precision. While watching it. And yes. you're not supposed to watch explosions when you're in a movie, but she looks Well, she's at cool, it. so she yeah. can do that. She wasn't even walking away. It was great. But the other crew dies, and so... Link is freaking out because he's like, they, we don't have, if the power comes back on, they can't make it through the door. There's an electrical lock or whatever it is. And so Trinity is like, I have no choice. I have to go in. I have to save them. And it's great because she's, he's like, you only got five minutes. She's like, all I need is five minutes. I'll tear that whole place down. And you're like, yes, Trinity, yes. Use that scorpion kick that Carrie Moss worked so hard. Which she does. So yeah. you see the opening scene yeah, again. Yeah, so you see it again. And you get to her falling out the window again. Mm-hmm. Not quite getting shot, but she's falling out the window. Yes. But it's fun because you have, um, like I said earlier, you get to see different angles of the fight because yeah. they already know you've already seen it. And there's obviously a little bit more in-between time between her going yeah, in, blowing everything up, and her falling out the window. For what she's actually doing yeah. there. And it's fun because, again, missed, you know, ships in the night. She's like, call Neo, let him know this is what's going on. And yeah. of course, as they're doing that, the door closes, so they won't have access to them. But I think the one complaint you and I had about that scene is it's a pretty straightforward plan and it's fun to see it happen while they're narrating it and mm -hmm. watch it go wrong in contradiction to the narration. Yes, I was thinking of a line, but I couldn't remember it. Um, it's pretty much him saying, like, we have to sync this up really well. But he says it in such a convoluted way where you're like, you could have cut this down. I don't know why you didn't. Yeah. In terms of how he delivers the plan. It's a pretty straightforward plan, but he, he made it complicated and didn't have to. And I think mm. that's one of the things that people complain a lot about in the sequels is I mean if you're to summarize the movie you're like actually it's pretty straightforward it just kind of gets bogged Everything down is sometimes described in such a yeah. wordy way yes. which is not always appropriate but we are about to talk about a scene where I think it's yes, very much you're on ready purpose. to defend it so it's different yes so you have basically plan not going well but Trinity going in his yeah, back she saves it she saves it and though it does not end great for her that's sort of tabled because as far as we can tell like time is basically frozen <laughs> or something well she's there's the in-between stage before she goes out the window that's true yep. that in-between stage is them trying to get to the source she's just uh, she's just in danger and while she is being in danger 
Neo has succeeded in getting there, and so I had to fight through some smiths yeah, again. Yeah, yeah. The whole the whole sequence once he's there, you know, just happens right before she is actually falling linearly in time, mm-hmm. which is the architect scene, which is I think the most one of the most the most scenes polarizing scene because I mean series. honestly, those other complaints about CGI that's more of an objective thing and. The cave rave is uh, it is not really that big of a deal, yes. but the architect scene does sort of is the of hinge on which the whole movie revolves around. So let's dive into yeah. it. Yeah, let's do it. Well, I mean, essentially, as we were saying, this is a an instance of the actual exposition not being that complicated. But it sounds like it is because of the way the architect uses all the words in the thesaurus. <laughs> yeah, seriously. I would like to call the architect um, Colonel Sanders because right, that is what right. he looks like to me. Thought well, I should share that with everyone. Uh, he, he tells Neo, uh, you know, you came here to save the Matrix, but uh, actually that's not your job. In a way it is. Or, or sorry, you came here to save Zion. Yes. And in a way, you will save Zion, but this is how it works, is you're supposed to uh, basically let us destroy it pretty much, and then you get to pick, like, 30 people around there. 16 um, men, 16 yeah, women. That you that you like, <laughs> and Restart. those ones will live, and they can reconstruct it, and then, you know, everything will be fine for us here in the Matrix, and it'll be great, but you get to have Zion still. And, oh, by the way, this has already happened, well, five, five times, five yes. Times. You're the sixth. Because Neo is the sixth. Yeah. And this is obviously a bit of a bit of a twist for Neo, since he thinks he is the one, but he is basically being told he is the sixth one. <laughs> uh, he is the sixth, not the oneth, yes. as they say. Yes. And, um, I mean, that's really just the thrust of, that's all the architect says. He just says that, and then he says, like, so you can go out that one door and do what I told you, or you can go out the other one, because, by the way, like, Trinity is dying. Yes. And you can save her if you want, even though the human race will die if you do that, because you won't have done what I told you to do. Yeah. It's interesting because you've pointed this out many times. The first movie is all about hero's journey, self-realizing, and the second movie just kind of takes that out from under you. Yeah. And well, being like, Neo buys into it finally. Yes. And then after he's bought into it, he's told that actually that you're was not, stupid. Yeah, you know. you're not special. Which is funny because he is kind he is of special. special. Uh, out of all of the the previous ones who have made this decision to reboot the system, to reload it, as it were. Yes. Oh, did you see that? And also, of course, because... I don't think they're all morally corrupt. You know, they took yes. the deal because they couldn't see any other way yes. to fix it. I it's almost not think so much that. They say, um, the architect points out, he says, you know, the one is always an anomaly that we can't fix in the mm-hmm. Matrix. We don't know how to fix it. We have to reset it every time. And every time we do that, and we have done that the past five times, they have always picked to save Zion. And yet you are the only one out of all of the anomalies that we've previously had that has formed an actual personal attachment. Because mm-hmm. all of them are obviously have an attachment they to their species. Humanity. They love <laughs> humanity. But we've never had one anomaly actually be in love with a particular person. Mm-hmm. And that is, again, the only thing that is Neo was sure about. And then it kind of ties back into the whole Oracle discussion of, you know, and even the Mer- Merovingian discussion of mm-hmm. cause and effect 
and choice. Neo has already made the choice to save Trinity, which makes him special within the context of being the sixth one. Yes, because none the of only the others would have made that choice. Yes, none of them would. And there's a cause and effect for that. If he does that, he's going to destroy the system. And the entire, like, everyone plugged into the Matrix, currently everyone who's outside of the Matrix hanging out in Zion, it's just going to be this crazy ripple effect of everyone's going to die. And that's not great. And yet, he's still going to choose it anyway. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, you have the, the architect, who is a, a fun, bitter man. Who he doesn't is, like humans He doesn't much. like humans, and I think he's very verbose, I guess is the word for it, because yeah, well, I think he's, he's a program. Supposed to be almost flaunting his intelligence. intelligence by using all these fancy words. Yes, and it's very important to note that he does not... He's annoyed that the Oracle was the one to figure out how to fix and reset the Matrix because the first couple times it Did wasn't not work. working. Yeah. And he was like, uh, it was just, I don't know, maybe a lesser person had to figure it out um, that you needed this anomaly to be reset. Mm-hmm. So that's pretty much it. That's the big twist is Neo is not the chosen one. He is uh, from a long succession and has predecessors. Well, I was thinking of it too. Like, it's not that just that... um. The other predecessors could not have saved everyone yes. properly, so they weren't put in that situation. Now Neo is only in that situation because the love overrides him, and all he really thinks about at that moment is sort of like, "You can't tell me what to do, buddy." Yes. I'm like I'm gonna save her if I want. Yeah. And he does. So then, once he's done that, he's left to realize, "Oh, now I have to find some other way out of this because I didn't take the deal." Yes. And it's like I think the other ones could probably also have found a way out. But they never had the motivation or the choice to that. make them be in the situation exactly. in the first place. They just thought, well, this deal sucks, but I should probably take it. Mm-hmm. And I'm not currently steamed up enough to reject it, basically. Right. It's funny because you pointed out that yeah. when the architect gets really wordy and pretty much is like, you're the sixth one. Neo is like, what? And the audience is the same way. It's like they reject the twist. It's not something they can fully comprehend. Yes. And I mean, I think the Now, if people are going to talk about the movies in depth at this point, they probably get that. Yes. But certainly at the time, I think a lot of people probably coming out of it right after seeing it, they didn't even realize that was the twist because of the same reason Neo has trouble with it. I think it's just such a big twist that you can kind of gloss over it. Yeah. Uh, if you aren't trying really hard to figure it out because mm-hmm. you just think like... I'm sorry, he's not the one. You know, yeah. I've I've been living with this knowledge for four years after seeing the original Matrix. Yeah, and having it have a big impact. That's another thing about you know rewatching the movie. It's just something that no matter how prepared you are, it might really throw you the first time you see yeah. it. Yeah, and it also harkens back to Morpheus's speech before the the rave of like we've always you know fought back against the machine. Zion has always been here. And then the architect is like, no, we've destroyed Zion a couple <laughs> times now. We've it's had like to a reload. fun game. Yeah. We try to see how fast we can do yeah. it. Yeah, <laughs> and, it's, and it's just, it's kind of heartbreaking because this is the moment where after Neo makes the choice to go and save Trinity, mm. and they have to, and the war isn't over, and Morpheus is at a loss. It's like a complete loss of faith because Neo's like, I'm sorry, it's just another system of control. We were wrong. Me going to the source doesn't automatically end the war. And he doesn't give explicit Morpheus reason why. Morpheus does not 
know what to do with that yeah, information. Yeah, Morpheus is having a, an existential crisis after this. And then they blow up his ship. I know, which is not cool. Which uh, does not help. Yes. Poor but Morpheus. we should talk about, <laughs> before we get too deep into the end, yeah. the money shot of Neo like, fuck you, architect, I'm going to save Trinity, and doing his beautiful Superman, flying Superman yeah. shot. He puts, his, he puts his hand out. Yeah. Proper Superman yeah, style. Yeah, he does it. He commits. And it's great because there's this beautiful, it's just like a really visually cool setup of her falling and him flying to catch her. And it's all in slow-mo. Yeah. And it's very cool and He's dramatic. He's got the city flying behind him. Yeah. He's picking up all the debris He's in his wake. steam. Yeah. He's yeah, and going he gets the distance. Her, and yeah. then he, she dies, but then he restarts her heart. Yeah. Because he loves her yeah. too damn much. That's right. It's true. And then... I do what Link says. I feel like I can't take this anymore. <laughs> yeah, I can't like take any of this. You know, a lot of people, I think, find that too cheesy, but it's kind of funny because yeah. unlike the first movie where we talked about how it might be found logically odd, like how exactly does he actually come back to life? Yes. Yeah, you don't really have to worry about that and reload it. Like, it's fine. He's just the one. He's like, I'm going to start your heart. It's, yeah. it's good. But in a way, I think that scene was actually harder for, for people than the one in the first movie mm-hmm. just because of something about <laughs> it's cheesier, it really is oh, it's super and, cheesy. and I, I have to say I just like it anyway but it's they I get understand. a little bit more technical with her coming back to life and I think that kind of throws off the the whole oh it's romantic, it's like mm-hmm. no he's physically trying to start her heart right now well I said it's logic again just yes. like the first movie in the first one she says you can't die because you can't I die like because you. you're the one. I'm supposed to love the one. The one can't die, and he goes, "Oh, you're right." So he comes back to life. Yeah. And in this one, he says, "You can't die because dead people don't have heartbeats, and I made you have one now." <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's a nice. So her brain thinks, uh, "Oh, you're right. Yes. I'm alive." I think it's a nice parallel, but I'm like, I don't know, a flip from the first one. Yeah. Of like her telling him, "Hey, get up. You're the one. I love you. I'm gonna." save your life and him fully in control of his oneness being like hey I love you get up by the way I made a choice <laughs> and now we might be a little screwed <laughs> but so yeah so we end up she wakes him up to save him and then he wakes her up damning the human race essentially mm, yeah yeah so we end up with I believe 24 hours is what we're told I believe so or it's either like 24 or 48 until the machines are going to get the through babies are down yeah which will be the third movie's focus yeah but, of course, for that last little twist, mm. Neo... Morpheus confused why war isn't over, and Neo's like, I'm sorry, it's not great. System yeah. of control, by the way. Sentinels are coming, we gotta leave the ship. And then he stops them in the real world with what looks like some sort of electricity shutting down powers. Mm-hmm. And they all break, and also he falls into a coma. Yes. And that is where he is left. End of the second one, and I think we will talk about the actual ramifications and explanation for that in the third one. Yes. But it is important. It is to know important, of course. That Morpheus is devastated. Rightfully so. They also take a ship. Like just punch him while he's down, guys. Seriously. And yeah. Neo in his coma state has also been placed right next to another person in a coma, which is Bane, the AKA Agent Smith, Smith in human real form. life, yes guy who apparently his whole ship like they all died and he's yes. the only survivor there's a very quick but important explanation of that where yeah. neo passes out after taking down the sentinels in real life saying like i can feel them this is different something's changed 
and they get saved by another crew and the crew is like hey we got another guy in sick bay we're the only ship left because they sent out all these ships and yeah. somebody set off an emp early so we had no defenses against the sentinels we swung around to pick up survivors there was only one and we're super suspicious of them and the one that it is is agent smith in human form yes Bane. although you have pointed out uh, Maybe it's kind of hard to tell who it is in yeah, the shot they chose. I think it's interesting because it's supposed to be like a dramatic cliffhanger where it it pans from Neo in the medic bay to the person opposite him also passed out in the medic bay. Mm-hmm. But it's like an upside down shot of his face. So the first time I saw it, I was literally like, wait, who is that? And Cut I think credits. that's an issue of, it helps again, watching it again. Mm-hmm. But for the first time, I think it's kind of hard to understand that that's Smith if you don't really pay attention, which I apparently didn't the first time. And then on top of that, you don't see his face a lot and probably not enough to instantly recognize him by seeing him upside down. So it kind of undercuts the, I think, dramatic effect they were going for with the cliffhanger, just from my personal viewing experience. Because again, I probably wasn't paying enough attention. It is one of those things, like many of the things we've talked about, Mm. where once you know these things and they're in your head, yes. they aren't really issues anymore, which yes. is nice for rewatching a movie like this. A lot of the problems kind of disappear because they had more to do with you not knowing every single bit of it in advance. Yeah, and not knowing what's important and what's kind of extraneous. Yeah. So, but that's it. And then it's funny because it, it leads on a cliffhanger. It leaves on a cliffhanger. Mm-hmm. And I didn't, I never got this until I kind of looked at reviews and kind of looked at more stuff but uh when that came out in theaters some people were under the impression that neo's ability in the real world while they're escaping before he slips into a coma to take out the sentinels Mm -hmm. meant that that was actually also another layer of the matrix and that it wasn't the real world yes which which does not play out no not at all although some people do maintain that it is still true so you can get into that conspiracy stuff if you want. But I think we'll talk about that in the third one because we'll have to talk about why exactly we do think that happened. Yes. And it's not that reason. Yes. But I think it's interesting because it's like, unless you see the third one, there's very little evidence to go against that. Yeah, you could go with it. You could definitely. But the funny thing is, I hadn't even considered it the first mm-hmm. time I watched it. I was like, oh, he's gained even more powers in the real world. I didn't even consider... He oh, just leveled up. There could be... That's essentially it, yeah. <laughs> it wasn't, oh, there's actually another layer of the Matrix. Mm-hmm. And I am I will say this for now, before we dive into it more for uh, revolutions, I am glad that there is not a second level of the Matrix, because it completely cuts away the importance of what happens if that yes, were true. I think it would just fundamentally undermine a lot of what they second and third movies yes. even if it is a very cool concept Yeah. but I, it, they didn't go with it. I'm I not don't sure know if, if having considered a, it. a cool ending twist would be worth sort of damaging a lot of the rest of the movie yeah. in my mind. But also, I think, guys, you've already got enough of a twist with the damn architect. Yes. <laughs> what more do you want? Not only is he not the one, but the reality you think is the reality is not reality. Yeah. Well, that's the main thing that yeah. I was thinking is that that's essentially the same twist. Yeah. The architect reveals that, um, you know, they don't understand how it works properly and that 
they are essentially still on another system of control, which is just based around a cycle mm -hmm. of destroying Zion and bringing it back. Yes. And so to have another twist a few minutes later, that is, you're still in a system of control. It's a different method, but it is the same exact twist. Yes. So it essentially was already done in the movie. Yes. <laughs> um, it's just a different way of going about it. And they didn't choose that way. So. But we'll get to that next time yeah, in an episode that will probably be a bit shorter because, honestly, I think there's less to talk about in Revolutions than Reloaded. Mm -hmm. But Well, that's debatable. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. We'll yes. see. It's I also a it's shorter movie. Yeah, that is true. Um, but I think that wraps up this episode. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to think of any last-minute additions that we need. I think we're good. I think we're set. So this will be exciting. We are almost wrapped up with The Matrix. we got one more to go. And we will talk to you guys then. Mm -hmm. All right. This is Vicky. Camden. And we'll be talking to you guys soon. All right. Wachowski watch. <laughs> Wachow. I'm making it dramatic. I'm whispering it. <laughs> if you guys liked our show, please let us know. You can rate and review us on Apple Podcast, and also feel free to contact us on our main website. That one is grumpyoctopusproductions.com. Then I'll link you up to all of our social media. You can follow us on Twitter and or like us on Facebook, and you can reach out to us at our email account. That is grumpyoctopusproductions at gmail.com. I think we're sensing a bit of a trend here. <laughs> um, also on the website, you guys can check out all of our episode and production notes and fun little extras as well. So, as always, thanks for listening, loyal listeners. Alrighty, signing off.